Good morning. Thanks for spending this time with Neartown Church. My name is Jake Porter and I'm a mission partner here at Neartown. It's my honor to share with you this morning some insights from God's Word. I want to talk to you this morning about what it means to be holy Christian. I don't mean H-O-L-Y holy, I mean W-H-O-L-L-Y holy as in completely full altogether. What does it mean to be fully Christian and more importantly, how do we get there? This is a subject I'm really passionate about and I'll tell you why. It's because I spent a lot of my own life not being wholly Christian. I believed in God, believed in Jesus as Savior and Lord. I trusted that the Bible is divine scripture. I attended church regularly. I even became a pastor, but I was not living wholly as a Christian. Maybe some of you listening right now are in the same boat. You've trusted in Christ and his death on the cross to pay for your sin, but you've not yet really gone all in with your faith. This message is for you. But it's also for those of you listening who've not yet crossed the line of faith, who may be skeptical about the claims of Jesus. In all likelihood, you've seen people who claim to be followers of Jesus, but who are not all in, who said they believe one way and then acted another. And my hope is that this message will help you not just uh, understand what could be going on with them, but also offer a way to live fully, authentically, and purposefully, a new way with a new hope and a new future. You have listened to me talk before, have heard me share that I spend most of my days now working as a couple counselor, working with those who are suffering the consequences of addiction and trauma. I wanna share with you a very common scenario from my sessions with couples. A wife says to me about her cheating husband, he's a narcissist, he only thinks of himself, I tell him what I need, simple and clear, and he won't do it. He refuses and he just keeps on doing exactly what he always has. Well, sometimes the husband is actually a narcissist who thinks so highly of himself that he's incapable of empathy and compromise or self-sacrifice, but usually that's not the case. In fact, quite often the real problem is just the opposite. The husband doesn't think too highly of himself, but he thinks too little of himself. It's not that he thinks his wife doesn't matter, but that he doesn't matter. And so what does he do? Nothing. In his mind, he wants to be a good partner to his wife. He knows what he needs to do. He can describe how she needs him to show up, but believing that he wouldn't make much of a difference even if he did step up and show up, he does nothing instead. And that makes for a pretty bad spouse. His heart might at least in part want it, and his mind at least in part knows what to do, but his body just sits there, unmoved. Well, guess what? That's how a lot of us go about our lives as followers of Jesus. We live knowing what God has called us to do. We pray to be more like Jesus. We even have a part of us that really hates the ways we disobey God and desires to do what's right. But with our bodies, we just keep living the same old way. Paul commands us against this duality in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let me read that to you and then we're gonna pick it apart to really see what God has for us from this passage. I'm gonna be reading today from the Net Bible translation. Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to the present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. When Paul wrote this letter, his first hearers would have heard immediately these words and thought of images of the Old Testament worship of Israel. 
The passage is filled with keywords that were intimately tied to the temple rituals of the ancient Hebrews. That first verb, translated present, was the verb used to describe offering an animal for sacrifice. And it's immediately followed by that word sacrifice. Paul talks about this being an act of service, or other translations render that word as worship. All these paint a picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system. So in case you're unfamiliar, let me fill you in briefly. In the Old Testament, before Jesus came and died and rose again, opening the way to God for all, getting to God was a cumbersome task. You had to go to the temple, and there you would meet the priest, and you would hand over to the priest an animal. And depending on your means and why you're bringing an offering to sacrifice, it could be a bird or a goat or a bull. And then you would have to confess your sins to the priest, and that priest would symbolically place your sins on that animal by placing his hands on its head. And then the animal would be killed in your place, offered on the altar to God. It was a bloody graphic scene. And Paul says, hey, you are to be presented as a sacrifice to God. Yikes. Let's drill down though and see exactly what he means with this striking image. First of all, notice that this command does not just come out of nowhere. The verse begins, therefore I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. This isn't just talking about the mercy of God as some nebulous abstract character trait. No, he's referring to the mercy, see the plural there? Meaning he has in mind specific mercies from God. And what those mercies are, he's just written about through the first 11 chapters. He's told us that even though the wages of our sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. He said that Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice for sinners, that true sacrifice that all those animal sacrifices pointed to. He told us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that Jesus has given us his spirit, and through this spirit, we're dead to sin and alive to righteousness. And he's also promised us that nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ. Those are amazing mercies. And he is saying that in light of those mercies of God, we are to offer ourselves as a sacrifice, but we're not to die. We're to be a sacrifice that is living, holy, and pleasing to God. See, we don't need to die to be a sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God because Jesus died for us in our place. Because he died, we can truly live. If it were up to me to atone for my own sins, death would be the only way. But because Jesus took my place, I can live. But I want to zero in on a very important word. Notice in verse 1 what Paul commands us specifically to offer to God as a sacrifice. If you have your Bible open, do you see it there? Present your bodies as a sacrifice. Let me tell you the big mistake I made in my Christian life for years and years. It was the same mistake that a lot of those husbands I see in my counseling practice are making. I thought that what I did didn't really matter. I somehow bought into a lie that what I did with my body really didn't make a difference in my life, and certainly not my spiritual life. I could use my lips and tongue to tell a lie. Not really a big deal, is it? I could lie around and be lazy and slothful and neglect my responsibilities, and that doesn't really hurt, does it? I could seek out and view images that I knew weren't really right to look at. Does it really hurt me or anyone else? It's a really old lie, this falsehood that my body doesn't really matter. It was around all the way back when the Bible was written. Greek philosophy believed in dualism, that the body is bad, but the spirit is good. And it later crept into Christianity in a movement called Gnosticism, 
which taught that only the spiritual is good and holy and worth saving, and the body, the material, is corrupt and meaningless and evil. How many of us today live as functional Gnostics? We pray, but we don't act. We study, we don't obey. We know what we ought to do, but for some reason we don't do it. But Paul says, offer your body as a sacrifice. And he even says in the last phrase of verse one, this is your reasonable service. Now that's a notoriously difficult phrase to translate. The word translated reasonable there is used only in one other place in the Bible. Some translations render it spiritual. I did a whole lot of research preparing for this message, and here's my conclusion. It's a word that we really don't have a perfect English equivalent for today, but it basically describes something as rationally spiritual or spiritually rational. In other words, being thoughtful, intentional, reasonable is not opposed to being spiritual. Spiritual acts are rational. They have a cognitive element to them. So let me just tell you very plainly how I would explain the meaning of this first verse. Its major point is this. Because of what God has done for us in Christ, our most rational and spiritual response is to offer ourselves wholly to him. It just makes sense that because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the rational and spiritual thing to do is to give your whole self, body and soul, to God. I could go on for hours defending that statement, but let me just make one argument for it. We believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We call this the incarnation. That is, we believe that Jesus took on human flesh. He didn't merely appear as a man. He wasn't a spirit in the form of a man. He wasn't God possessing another man's body. Jesus became a whole human being with a mind, a will, a heart, and a body. And so Jesus offered his whole self for us. He didn't just spiritually die. He didn't just give up his spirit. He gave up his will to God. He gave up his desires to God. And he gave up his body and shed his blood on the cross to God for us. Later this morning, you're going to be invited to celebrate the Lord's Supper. What that is in part is a reminder of a real physical body of flesh and blood that was offered for us as a sacrifice. So let me ask you, if Jesus only wanted your spirit, why not just become a spirit? Or if he only wanted your mind, why not become a disembodied mind? He wants all of us, so he took on our whole nature to save us completely, body and soul. And so it only makes sense. It's your rational act of worship to give your body over to God as a sacrifice. Now, when we do that, there's something really special that happens. Let me tell you what I think verse 2 is really saying, and then we'll look a bit closer. Verse 2 is saying, when we offer ourselves to God rather than the world, we are renewed from the inside out. So verse 2 begins with a negative command. Do not be conformed to this present world. Let me tell you an inconvenient truth. If you do nothing, you will be conformed to this world. In other words, there's no neutral position. You are either being conformed to this world or transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how does this conforming happen? With your bodies, with your five senses, with what you see, hear, smell, taste, and touch. What you do and experience, especially repeatedly, has a formative effect on you. In neurobiology, there's something called Hebb's Rule, named after Donald Hebb, a neuropsychologist, all the way back in the 1940s. Hebb's Rule is this. Neurons that fire together, wire together. 
So when I repeat a behavior or have a thought over and over, the neurons in my brain that formulate that thought or engage that behavior actually become wired together in such a way that the literal physical neural structure of my brain is more likely to do it again. What we do or don't do is what forms in us a default setting and cultivates our desires and sets our trajectories for our future thoughts and feelings and actions. So I can know that behavior X is wrong, but if I keep doing behavior X, then my body and brain is actually being conformed to that very behavior. It's really, really easy then to be conformed to the world. You know what you have to do? Nothing but live in the world. You'll be carried along by this influence and that impulse and between the fallen world's shiny temptations and your own fleshly cravings, it's going to happen. Paul says for us not to do that, but instead we are to, he writes, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, what does that mean? How does that happen? Back to verse 1, it tells us, by the mercies of God, offer your bodies. Remember what I said, these mercies of God are those acts of goodness that God has done for us in Christ. The mercies of God are the elements of that which we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus. By that gospel, I offer my body to God. It's not enough to just try to do the right thing. That would be work salvation, and works salvation never works to save. No, instead, I trust in God's mercies shown to us in Christ, and then I act on that trust with my body. And guess what happens then? Our minds are renewed. And notice, Paul doesn't command us to be transforming ourselves by renewing our own minds, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This is a work of God in us as we, by faith, offer our bodies as living sacrifices. For many years in my own journey of faith, I thought I could be spiritual in my heart without congruence in my body. What I now know is that I am no more spiritual than my behavior reflects. It was not till I truly by faith offered the members of my body to God, my mouth, my hands, my feet, my eyes, my ears, my whole self, that I found a deep peace with God in my heart. You see, once I began to offer my body, like physically making myself by faith in his mercies, do what he commands, then Heb's law started wiring my brain in a way that by the grace of the Holy Spirit was conforming me to the image of Christ. I was being transformed from one degree of Christ-likeness to another as I put my faith in Jesus and let my body follow that. Put your trust in Jesus and the Holy Spirit will empower you to embody Christ-likeness. As we embody our faith, we are wholly becoming his body and soul. Now look how the verse ends. This is what he says will happen when our minds are renewed. He says, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. The translation test and approve really comes from just one Greek verb that means test with a positive outcome. When we, by God's mercies, offer our bodies and experience transformation by the renewing of our minds, suddenly we experience a testing of God's good, pleasing, and perfect will with a positive outcome. Let me illustrate what I think that means. Those guys I counsel who come in thinking they don't matter and so they do nothing, I don't try to talk them logically into some different behavior. I don't persuade them or shame them or argue with them. This is usually how it goes. The wife is sitting there hurting, starving for some empathy and connection. He's sitting there stuck in shame, thinking it won't matter whatever he does. And I ask him, do you trust me enough to try something? And I'm usually pretty good at rapport building. And he says, yeah. So I say to him all slumped up and curled inward, sit up. Put your shoulders back. 
Take a deep breath. Look at her in the eye. Smile. Now tell her what you know she needs to hear from you. Tell her what your heart wants to say. And nine times out of 10, they do. And they shock their wives, but more importantly, they shock themselves. They already knew what to do, but because they had not done it, they hadn't discerned that it is right and good and pleasing and it transforms them. A part of you might know what's right, what's God's will, but when you do it by faith in his mercies for us, then you know by experience how good and pleasing and perfect his will really is. And when you taste it, you'll want more. And when you want to do it more, you will do it more and you'll be further transformed and further renewed. So let me ask you, what would it look like for you today to offer your body as a living sacrifice to God? When you consider God's mercy shown to us through Jesus, his perfect life of love, his death in our place, his resurrection from the grave, where do you find an incongruence between what you know and believe and what you do and demonstrate? Is there a way to serve? Is there a truth you need to speak? Is there a sin you need to slay with your actions? My hope and my prayer for you today is that you experience the new life of Christ more fully than ever as you put your hands and feet to your faith and offer your soul, whole self, body and soul, to God, just as Christ did for us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the mercies you've shown us in your son, Jesus. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you sent a savior to come and live a righteous life and die in our place, bearing the weight of our sins, that we could be forgiven by him, by faith in what he's done. Thank you that he rose again and then gave us his spirit to empower us. And I pray now, Lord, that each person who's heard this word would have the courage by your grace to move themselves wholly, heart, mind, and body in obedience to you, and that in so doing, you would make us all more and more into the image of your son, Jesus, for our good and for the glory of your name. We pray in Christ's name, amen.